Well, good morning, Tri-Valley. It is, uh, it's great to be here with you this morning. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Josh, and I am married to an amazing wife named Tiffany, and I have two of the, the most incredible kids that you can possibly imagine. Uh, my daughter Peyton is uh, 14, and my son Andrew is 11, but soon to be 12 here in a couple of months. Uh, Tri-Valley has been near and dear to our family for the better part of 10 years now, and those of you who've been around long enough to remember the, the church planting efforts that took place in Berkeley some years back uh, may appreciate that, that my family was on that church planting team. And while that, that goal uh, never quite materialized, Tri-Valley's heart for church planting in that season left an incredible impression on us. And so with that, I, I'm excited and I'm honored that my buddy Jacob invited me to share a message with you today and to follow Bryce and Kyle, two incredible preachers and friends of mine, is, is no easy task. But I will do my best today to the glory of God. As we get started this morning, I want to go back to the basics. I want to go back to the beginning. As God's Word begins, I invite you to open to the book of Genesis, a word that literally means beginning. And this should be easy to find because it's, it's the only time that we will all be on the same page together. We will be on page one of your Bible, wherever that might be. Uh, God's word begins with these famous words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These 10 words may not seem like they say very much, but there's, there's beauty and brevity. And there are six questions that every researcher, every journalist has been asked to answer in the, in the midst of their work, and you know them well. Who, what, when, where, why, and last one, how. Who, what, when, where, why, how. And the beautiful thing about the first sentence of the entire Bible is that most of those questions are answered for us before we, we ever read the first period. Who, God, what, created, when? In the beginning. Where? The heavens and the earth. And in the verses that follow, even the how begins to be answered for us. How did God create? God said, let there be light. And there was, there was light. Right away, we learn something vital. When God speaks, creation obeys. And God is so powerful, he, he's, he's so glorious, that all it takes are his words to carry out his grand plans, which is so different from us, isn't it? Like when, when you and I create, we start with something. If I, if I build a treehouse, I start with wood. If I build a sandcastle, I start with sand. If I draw a drawing, I start with a pencil. That's how you and I create. We take something that already exists and, and we form it with our hands into the something that it had the potential to become. But not so with God. God speaks, and out of nothing, creation obeys. Like, this God is a powerful God. He's unlike anything or anyone that we've ever known. He is full of glory. That is what the first few sentences of the Bible reveal to us. And as the text continues, we, we read more about the, the what, more about creation. On the first day, God created light. And on the second day, he created skies 
And on the third day, God created the seas and the land. And on the fourth, the the sun, the moon, the stars, the fifth, the, the birds of the air and the fish in the sea. And on the sixth day, God created all the animals on the ground with one special project worth highlighting. He created humanity, mankind. This mankind that we read about was special. And it was unique in all of creation for two reasons. Number one, God gave them dominion and authority over every living creature that he'd made. And number two, most importantly, God created mankind in his image and in his likeness. And and it sounds neat to say that, but what does that mean exactly? Like, does it mean that we, we look like God? Does it mean that we smell like God? Does it mean that we act like God? I love what John Piper says about the image of God. He says this, he says that the point of an image is to image. Images are erected to display the original, to point to the original, to glorify the original. God made humans in his image so that the world would be filled with reflectors of God, images of God, seven billion statues of God, so that nobody would miss the point of creation. Nobody, unless they were stone blind, could miss the point of humanity, namely God. Knowing, loving, showing God. Church, the creation account invites us to see something about our purpose that we were each, despite our uniqueness, designed to image and reflect God in heaven. And all of that sounds neat. All that sounds interesting. But, but it doesn't really answer that why question. Like we know who and what and when and where and why and how. But we don't know why. I said why, but we don't know why. The answer to that question isn't spelled out explicitly until much later, but it is answered. In in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, and he he says that he created his sons and his daughters. That's you and me. He says, and I quote, for my glory. He created you and me for his glory. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens also declare God's glory. The psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. You and and me and everything that we see in all of creation declares God's glory, proclaims the work of his hands, pours forth speech, reveals knowledge of the unseen creator God. You know, some people hear that and they ask, "But, but isn't that narcissistic? They say, like, how how arrogant God must be to demand that we glorify him. But we ask that because we can't get outside of our own flesh to see from God's perspective. We are so busy wanting our own glory that we can't can't see how fair it is that God would demand his own. It's, It's not narcissistic for a glorious God to receive the glory that is due him. One, one article said it like this, that it, that it seems God 
has good reason to think of himself as the greatest conceivable being because he is, in fact, that. And so to describe God as anything less than that is to describe a divinity inconsistent with what Christians mean by God. And so throughout the centuries, Christians have understood God as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Glory belongs to God and God alone. And still some hear that and say, okay, but, but did God really need to make us? Like, yeah, maybe he's the, the most glorious, but did he, did he really need us to come and tell him that? Like, why bother in the first place? And I think as, as image bearers of his, we can, we can learn a lot about God by looking into our own heart. I mean, after all, we reflect him. So let's, let's look at our own heart because there's a really, really good chance that, that you either have kids of your own or you will someday. And I acknowledge that there are some people who, who choose not to or aren't able to. But for many of us, perhaps most of us, that's a desire that we have. That's a desire that we experience. But the question I want to ask you today is why? Is it because we want these little minions of ours to go around and glorify us? Like I said at the beginning, I have two awesome kids of my own. But I never had them because I wanted them to glorify me. It was, it was something else entirely. And I think Thomas Aquinas, if you know that name, helps us to, to really see what that is. And what Aquinas pointed to like 600 years ago was the nature of God's goodness and love. He said that, that people who experience love and goodness know that it is never the kind of thing that, that people want to keep to themselves, that they naturally want to spread it. And, and so because love and goodness are not finite, they can be spread and spread and spread and spread. And so my marriage is a chance to spread love and goodness. And my kids are a chance to spread love and goodness. And my, my friendships are a chance to spread love and goodness. My church is a chance to spread love and goodness. I, I didn't have kids to be glorified by them. I had kids because I desired to love them. And if you can understand that, I think you can begin to understand the why. Why did God create? I think it had a lot to do with the God who was the very definition of love and goodness, simply wanting to spread that throughout his creation. But as with any creation, even the things that, that you and I create, all creation has a purpose. And God makes clear that our purpose is to glorify him, just as the heavens fulfill their purpose and glorify him. And so if we are God's image bearers, and if, if God's image is, is one of love and goodness, doesn't that say an awful lot about how we are called to image and reflect God here on earth, to, to be people of love and goodness? And nobody likes when their, their image is tarnished or, or misrepresented, whether that's in regard to the physical, their physical appearance or their character or something else. I remember several years ago, maybe you saw this story, uh, the, the great soccer player Ronaldo, I'm not a soccer fan, but I heard this story. Ronaldo was honored with a statue, a bust made in his image, and it was put on display in the airport in his hometown in Europe that he was from, and it made headlines because of how laughably bad of an image it was. It didn't, it didn't look like him at all, like a, maybe a cartoon depiction of him, but, but not him, and it was laughable, and it was embarrassing. And that's why, why bearing God's image is such a big deal. Like, we represent him. I represent him. You represent him. 
This is not something to, to, to be taken lightly. And so what happens when, when our reflection of him is laughable or is embarrassing? Like, what happens when God's image bearers forget their, their real and their ultimate purpose? Well, let me ask you this. What happens when a screwdriver no longer drives screws? Or when a, a hammer no longer drives nails? What happens when a computer no longer computes? See, in my, in my kitchen, I have this can underneath the counter for things like that, where, where every Wednesday morning, all the things that go in that can kind of go get taken out to the street, and this truck comes by early in the morning and picks it up and takes it to go be buried in the ground somewhere. You probably do too. You know, whenever something stops fulfilling its purpose or what it was designed to be and do, we usually dispose of it. And so what God made and what God purposed in this world was love and goodness and beauty and order and all these things designed to give God glory. And yet, as, as the pages of Genesis march on from the, the perfection of what God had made, we, we read of fractures that begin to emerge. Many of these stories you probably know very well and have read, read many, many times. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, while, while in the midst of a garden, in fellowship with God, God literally walks among his creation a tempter approaches Eve with a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, it's just a question, right? Like how, how harmful could a question really be? The interesting thing about this question, as I thought this, this week, is how similar it is in structure to many of the conspiracies and falsities that have swept our land in recent times. Like many of them start with questions too. But you'll notice that they are, are never open-ended questions that, that are actually inviting real, true discovery. They, they pose as those questions. But in reality, they are leading questions that already have a desired conclusion built into them, hinted at. And I, I read a fascinating article that, that looked at how recent conspiracy theories have, have managed to gain such a, a cult following in our country. And, and what they pointed to was a psychological term, I found this rather interesting, called apophenia which is the, the human tendency, and we all have this, to perceive a connection or a pattern between unrelated things or, or random things. And it was written from the perspective of a game designer, somebody who might design escape rooms or something along those lines, who described how they both use and have to avoid apophenia when designing games. Because there are times when you want the player to see a connection between ideas or objects, and there are times when they really, really need to guard against that for fear that, that players are going to see some connection that doesn't really exist and then spend all this time uh, trying to find a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. And so what this person noticed in, in recent conspiracy theories is what, what he called guided apophenia. And he talks about the, the puppet masters. He said that the puppet masters are directly involved in hinting about their desired conclusions, that they have preceded the conclusions that they have, that they're constantly getting the, the player lost by pointing out unrelated random events and, and creating a meaning for them that, that fits their propaganda message. That is exactly what the tempter or serpent does in Genesis chapter 3. He asks a question, and it's a question with a, with a preceded conclusion, and then he follows with a half-truth. He says, Eve, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good 
and evil. And with those words, the deceit of the serpent had fully grown. Eve took the bait and Adam with her. And these image bearers of God, image bearers of God, bought into the serpent's propaganda message. They took the bait. And verse six, 6 says that when the, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. Like, were they, were they truly woke? No, they, they, they were deceived. And they exchanged the truth of God for this lie. In that moment, they rejected their purpose to bring glory to God. And instead, what they did was sought the glory of God for themselves. You will be like God. You know, we call Genesis 3 the fall or the fall of man because in this singular event, man introduces evil into the world for the very first time. And if you know the story, God followed with the consequences. First, for the serpent, then for the woman, and finally for the man. And it ended with a promise that this once immortal, image-bearing part of God's creation would return to the dust from which he or she came. They, they, in that moment, they became the screwdriver that couldn't drive screws. They were the creation who could no longer fulfill their created purpose. They could no longer glorify God as his image bearers. And as a result, God removed them from the garden, removed them from his presence. And in the chapters that followed that moment, uh, what we see are, are example after example after example of God's special uh, creation continuing to rebel against their purpose, unable to glorify God because they were preoccupied only with glorifying themselves. We see it in the next chapter, Genesis 4. Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, bring offerings to God. And Abel's offering glorifies God. Cain's offering does not. And Cain's jealous desire for glory, for self-recognition, compels him to commit the first murder as he takes his brother out into a field. And he kills him. Two chapters later in Genesis 6, these, these image bearers of God, people meant to bring glory to him, are instead described this way. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And in that moment, God brought a flood on the earth. He, he hit the reset button, if you will, and he started over with one family, with Noah's family, a righteous family. And yet as the, the earth began to repopulate, just a few chapters later in Genesis 11, they gathered together for a common purpose, now armed with a new invention, the, the brick, right? And what did they do with their combined resources and their intelligence? They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Once again, God's image bearers had cast aside their created purpose in an effort to, to take the glory for themselves. And so God confused their languages and scattered them. Literally, they were babbling so they could never work again in that way. 
if the beginning of Genesis shows us anything, it's that the heart of man, despite God's created purpose for him, for us, for her, will always find ways to drift towards some other purpose, some other priority, often by giving glory where glory doesn't belong. I think about the events that have transpired here recently in our country, and they're events that remind us of the pervasiveness and the danger of giving glory where glory doesn't belong. You know, many of the recent events that have transpired here in our country have done so either implicitly or even explicitly under the banner of Jesus' name, suggesting that this was done in his name, that this was done for his glory. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that says that the sun is, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And so church, to be image bearers of God as we were created to be is to literally be like Christ because Jesus, more than any other man ever created, knows how to be God's exact image bearer. And so as Jesus hung on that cross, we know what he could have done. We know, we sing about it. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have come to his own defense. He could have overcome that, that horrible situation. He could have called 10,000 angels. But in reality, in action, he died alone for you and for me. Like those, those recent, these recent events that we've encountered are not of him. They're not of that guy. Instead, these events, I think, reflect the darkness that we see in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and Genesis 6 and Genesis 11 and so many more stories that we don't have time to tell, but which I'm sure a lot of you know so well. You know, these, these things only happen when people lose sight of their God-ordained purpose and their role in creation. And instead, they give glory where glory doesn't belong. It's true of political leaders. It's true of, of organized groups and movements and militias. It's, it's true of the heart of every single individual. It's true of me. And it's true of you. Speaking only for myself here, you know, there have been a lot of times over the years in ministry where something begins to go well. And I've, I've noticed I've had this tendency where I start to get a little puffed up, a little prideful about it. But God has this way about him where, where he humbles me and he reminds me, often in painful ways, that, that ministry is, is never for my glory. That even in doing God's work, I can have this bad habit of beginning to think that I have something to do with the successes. I've learned I don't. Church, if, there, if there's one thing I want you to take from, from today in this message, it's this. That God's story declares God's glory. I'm going to say that again. God's story declares God's glory. And there are, there are lots of ways that you can read that statement and understand that statement. But in the end, we all need to remember that God created you in his image. Not the other way around. He created you in his image. Oh, I think a lot of us forget that reality sometimes and we begin to, to project our, our own sinful, broken flesh onto his character because a lot of us, without realizing it, inherently believe that we are good. 
we think, well, I'm a good person and, and I care deeply about this issue right here. And so, so God must care deeply about this issue as well. And I want to caution you, church, don't make that mistake. Because instead, we need to be humble. We need to humble ourselves enough to get into God's word and truly learn to do what it says. God's story is all about declaring God's glory. And so when we go into the world and we share that story, we we need to remember that, that we do not also share in God's glory, right? Like God gets all of it. We don't share any of that glory with him. He gets all of it. And so we should be weary of the person who says, hey, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at how great I am or we are or whatever. Church, we are not great. Instead, we reflect the image of a very great God. God is great. And he created us with a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify him. But there's great news in this. And the great news is that even in our brokenness, man, God loves us immensely. He still wants to spread his love. He still wants to spread his goodness in this world. And that means that God loves every single person who stormed the Capitol. God loves Donald Trump. He loves Joe Biden. He loves Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. He loves racists. He loves bigots. He loves hypocrites. He loves murderers. He loves me, the worst of sinners. And he loves you. In fact, he loved you so much that he didn't stop creating in that moment. His next great act of creation in Genesis was to begin to create a rescue plan that began with a man in Ur of the Chaldeans named Abram and culminated thousands and thousands and thousands of years later with a man named Jesus. John's gospel tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Church, that, that is what we invite you to this morning. If you want to receive the love that God has for you and to live out your purpose to bring glory to God's name, purpose that belongs to nobody, and nothing else. We want to invite you to do that. As I close, I want to speak this blessing over you from God's word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Thank you, Tri-Valley, for this amazing opportunity to share God's word with you. May God bless you richly. And may you give all the glory that you have to God. God bless you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'll hope to see you next time.